Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. As Ian alluded to earlier this morning, I'm going to be kicking off a new seven-part sermon series titled On Purpose, produced by London of Institute for Contemporary Christianity, an organization that the late John Stott founded. The series invites us to think differently about our whole life and everything we do through God's eyes. And as we do, we will discover his given purpose for us right where we are as people made in his image, who have been given a new identity, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And the five areas of life in focus during the series will be work, family, friends, interests, and neighborhoods. As an aside, uh, the series is supplemented by a 40-day Lent devotional plan that you can access free of charge by downloading the YouVersion app to your phones or your tablets. If you prefer to use a computer instead, you can go to Windsor Road's Facebook page and click on to the link that was posted yesterday. The plan contains daily scriptural readings and a short devotional, and on certain days it will feature stories, real-life stories of ordinary people living out their God-given purpose right where they are. As you would have guessed, the uh, devotional plan actually started on Wednesday, the first day of Lent. But if you missed it, though, don't worry. Just start today. And if you start today, then it becomes day one of the plan. And I followed it every day since Wednesday, and I highly recommend it to, highly recommend it to you. It's a great resource. The sermon series is also supplemented by a study guide that some of our LTGs are using during Lent. I encourage you to join an LTG if you're already not part of one during this time. Just reach out to one of the LTG leaders using the contact information uh, on the uh, news bulletin that is, that is emailed to you every week. The title of this morning's sermon is Purpose in Everything. Brothers and sisters, no matter how boring, how ordinary, how repetitive our everyday tasks and interactions may feel like, if we truly believe in Jesus' promise that he's with us always until the end of age, uh, until the end of the age, then we have purpose. Very often what we need is not a new challenge or change, but a fresh perspective, a God perspective, namely that he wants to enlist each and every one of us to be a part of his redemptive purpose, making earth more like heaven, irrespective of your age and stage of life. This means your workplaces, your family, your friends and colleagues, your interests and neighborhood are no accident, but are brimming with opportunities for us to give reason for the hope that we have, to draw alongside individuals he already knows and love and is already working in. So we want to read a part of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah writes to his countrymen that King Nebuchadnezzar carried into exiles from Jerusalem to Babylon that forms the basis of the series. 
So Jeremiah chapter 29, verses four to nine. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease, and also seek the prosperity of the city to which I have called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the, the, to the dreams they encourage you to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. For context, in 586 BC, after a siege lasting one and a half years, King Nebuchadnezzar conquers and destroys the city of Jerusalem, its citizens, the elite of Jewish society, the artisans, the professionals and leaders were forcibly taken into Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor remain in Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah receives a word from God, and he conveys that message to the exiles in a letter, which is essentially a rebuke of false prophets who are fermenting unrest among them by spreading a false message and a false hope that their suffering will soon end. God will free them and their misery will be no more. For the time being, until that deliverance come, they're to keep to themselves. They're to keep their distance from the godless, idolatrous Babylonians, minimize all contact wherever possible with them, lest they be contaminated, lest they be led astray. No wonder the exiles lapped up that message but God, through Jeremiah, tells them their situation is actually going to get worse. They've been in exile for another 70 years. We're not that dissimilar from the exiles, are we? From a certain vantage, of point, a certain vantage point, that is. While most of us have never experienced displacement because of war or other horrible circumstances, we share similar emotions, such as feelings like we no longer belong as our culture gets more secular by the day. Who would have thought that a simple question like what is a man, what is a woman could be so controversial? If you talk about your faith, it could provoke a cynical, irritable, and even an angry response. Traditional Christian values are looked upon as archaic and outdated, like sex before marriage or marriage vows being lifelong and sacred. Nick Spencer, a Christian and director of a think tank in the UK that advocates for the place of religion and society explains that this is because over the past 50 years, countries like the UK and Australia move from a normative Christian culture to a liberal secular outlook. 
prevailing views on issues of uh, personal morality, such as gender, sexuality, and the beginning and end of life have shifted. This has meant that, the mainst that mainstream orthodox Christian beliefs are now sometimes seen as extreme. I don't think we're alone, but Sue and I struggle with what our culture is turning into. And we would say to one another sometimes, Lord, come soon, come soon. Being in the world and not being of it simultaneously as Jesus expects of his followers is becoming more complex and more difficult. So in such a situation, we can be like chameleons and fit in with our local surroundings rather than be prophetic and be countercultural. Or we, or we can be like the rabbits by staying safe in our burrows, pop our heads out when the coast is clear, get what we need before quickly retreating into our safe havens. In other words, be detached and remove from what goes on in our world, what goes on in our front lines, a terminology we use to refer to places that we are on a daily basis. And that was the message that the false prophets were saying, were giving to the exiles. Stay detached, stay removed. Don't have anything or have as little as possible to do with the Babylonians. However, God's message to the exiles through Jeremiah and to us is to do neither, is to be neither. Be neither the chameleon or the rabbit. Instead, as God's people, they are to, we are to, number one, be assured that their presence in the city is by God's design. And that's the first thing that they are to know. That's the first point that God makes to the exiles. Be assured that you are where you are by design, by my design. Three times God spells out to the exiles that it was him who carried them into Babylon. Verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile. Verse 7, also seek the prosperity and peace of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And then finally, verses 13 and 14, you will seek me, you will find me, and when you seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Os Guinness, an author and theologian, puts it this way, Quote, we're not primarily called to do something or go somewhere. We're primarily called to someone. We're not called first to special work, but to God himself. See, our problem in the West is that we have too much to live with and too little to live for. See, it would not, matter for, uh, would not matter that the exiles would spend another 70 years in Babylon, but only if they knew that their first call to God who's with them and who is for them. As such, they can confidently then build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
marry and start a family, encourage the children to marry and settle as well. But notice that God is also generous of heart and he's missional. So he tells the exiles to also focus on seeking the peace and prosperity of the city, the people he has called them to. Os Guinness again says, quote, we may at times be unemployed, but no one ever becomes uncalled. See, we, we may at times be unemployed, but no one ever becomes uncalled. The notion that God is with us, the notion that God is for us, is what underpins and grows our sense of purpose. See, I can say with absolute confidence that you have purpose. God has unfinished business that he wants to conduct with you and through you. How do I know that you have purpose? Because you're not dead. That's how I know. You're not dead. If you're alive, which you are, and you have purpose, God is not done with you. God is not done through you. Secondly, is God's people, they and we, to fully engage, to faithfully engage, to invest into, pray for, and serve our local community right where we are, right where they were, as conduits and catalysts of shalom out of their distinctive spiritual identity, out of our spirit, distinctive spiritual identity, that is Christ in us, the hope of glory. We're to fully, faithfully engage, pray for, invest into our community. The Hebrew word, and most of you know this, translated uh, welfare, peace, prosperity, is shalom. And its meaning is much more than the absence of war or conflict. It means completeness. It means wholeness. It means to flourish in spirit, soul, and body as individuals, but also as communities, the way God intended. In other words, the people of God then and now are to use their gifts, interests, and resources to the degree we're able in our front lines to be agents of shalom, to be agents of Shalom. There's something else we need to look closely, though. In verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I called you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prosper, you too will prosper. And what we have here is a dynamic principle of God. That is, the exiles will find their own shalom, not in seeking their own shalom, but in seeking the shalom of, their ba of the Babylonians in their new surroundings. Jesus' version of that verse goes like this. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Focus on giving of yourself. Focus on serving others. God will look after you. 
Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, writes about this decree. Quote, it's a shocking decree. The slavers were commanded to pray for their captors, to seek the welfare of this foreign city, to invest in real estate and engage in commerce in a land holy and familiar and hostile towards them. It's unfathomable to think about live as the end slave cheering for my end slaver. If God commanded Israel to invest in the welfare of their captive city, it makes me wonder how much he desires for us to love, cherish, and invest in our neighborhoods, our cities, which are far from hostile. This means, for instance, we miss the mark, brothers and sisters, as a church, when our concern is about our own self, our own own survival, our own welfare, our own needs, without also asking the question, how can we, the gathered church and the scattered church, serve and engage those we come across in our front lines? We cannot be just about our shalom individually and corporately. We must first seek the shalom of those in our front lines. And when we do this, God says in his word, he will look after us. He will look after us. So what does it look like, though, to, be, uh, to not be detached and removed, but be fully active and involve conduits and catalysts of shalom in our front lines? Let me tell you two stories. Because we don't want to theorize this. We want to be practical. And so hopefully these stories will inspire you and give you inspiration. There was a lady who worked for a company, and not long after starting there, she made a big mistake. And she was fully convinced it would cost her her job. She expected the worst when her immediate boss went to his superior. However, instead of throwing her under the bus, he took complete responsibility for her mistakes. In doing that, it cost him. He lost some of his reputation. He also lost some of the goodwill that he had generated. His good standing in, with, within the company was damaged. She was stunned and amazed at what he had done and went to thank him. She told him that she had often seen supervisors take credit for what she had accomplished. But she had never seen a supervisor who took the blame for something she did that was wrong. She wanted to know why he did what he did. Finally, he tells her, I'm a Christian. That means, among other things, that God accepts me because Jesus Christ took the blame for the things that I have done wrong. He did that on the cross. And that is why I have the desire and sometimes the ability to take the blame for others. <laughs> Powerful, isn't it? She stared at him for a long time before blurting out, where do you go to church? Where do you go to church? Because I want to come too. She subsequently gave her life to Jesus. What a testimony. 
Story number two. About 30 years ago, Mark's parents had dinner with a couple, Michael and Rosemary. Michael was an esteemed and one of the most uh, for, one of the foremost evangelists of the 20th century. At that time, no one in Mark's family was a Christian. It was only about 15 years later that Mark had become a Christian that he found out about his parents' dinner experience with Michael and Rosemary. Well, Mark was keen to find out what Michael was like and what they talked about, what he talked about with his parents. So he asked his mother, Mom, what do you remember about your dinner with Michael? Did he give some brilliant answers to your questions? Did he blow you away with his insights and wisdom? Did he bring up the, the gospel in conversation? Was he impressive with his gospel presentation? Did that floor you? Well, this is what Mark's mother remembered fondly that day. After all that time, this is what sprung to her mind when she looks back at this dinner experience. He carved the meat with such dignity. That's what she said. He carved, Michael carved the meat with such dignity. Now, Mark was bamboozled by that answer. What did she mean? What did a mother mean? A few years later, uh, Mark was uh, listening to a lecture that uh, Michael was giving. And so Mark was desperate to find out Michael's version of dinner that night. So he approaches Michael, and Michael remembers the, conversa- remembers the evening very well. And Mark asks him, there's something I've been meaning to ask you. My mom recalls only one thing from that evening. She remembers how you carved the meat with such dignity. Quick as a flash, Michael replied, well, I suppose I would have done that. After all, the animal gave its life for me. After all, the animal gave its life for me. You see, Michael's biblical understanding of the graciousness of God's provision and of the dignity of creatures that God had given life to was so deep that it manifested in the way he carved the meat. Not like a caveman. You know, with respect, this is God's provision. And this is an animal that it's given its life for me, not by choice. The sacredness of life, even in animals. And that's what spoke volumes to Mark's mother. His distinctive, holy way of carving the meat left an indelible mark lasting 30 years on someone who didn't yet believe in Jesus. See, even the most mundane of actions like carving meat can serve God's purpose, can in and of itself have a God-given purpose. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, 
in all of our front lines, whether it's our work, family life, friendships, interests, and neighborhoods, God wants us to see that he has specific ministry purposes for each one of us. No exceptions and no exemptions. He wants us to know that he has placed us where we are by design. If you're convinced that you are not where you are by design, then seek the Lord and ask him to move you where he wants you to be. But if not, then you are where you are by God's design. And that is the basis for us to engage, invest into and pray for and serve whoever that's there in our front lines as conduits and catalysts of shalom out of our distinctive spiritual identity concealed for generations but now revealed to us, and that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Brothers and sisters, I implore you to reject the notion that God's purpose for you only kicks in once you've retired. And that is such a common assumption, isn't it? You'll hear people say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm waiting for my retirement. It's only two years away. Then I can start serving. Then I'll have time to serve God. Then I'll have, uh, I'll have the energy to serve God. Until then, it's not going to happen. Where do we get the idea from that God's purpose only kicks in once you've reached retirement age? Don't entertain for one minute a widespread assumption that the only way to serve God is when you're doing overseas mission work or when you're doing work for the church or in the church. And that's another widely held assumption. That only work undertaken by the church, work undertaken by the church, for the church in the church, is considered a value. That is such a lie. God's purpose for you is so much more than just what happens on Sundays. And I say that again. God's purpose for each one of you is so much more than just what happens on Sunday. So for your application this week, you know, I always like to end my sermon with an application so that you have something to think about that you can do. Okay, it's not a legalistic thing. I'm not saying thou shalt do this. But so often we hear a message and we go, okay, where to from here on? What, what now? What do I do with what I've just heard? So this week, I'd like you to meditate on Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the message version, because I like the message version for this one. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday life, your ordinary life, your sleeping, your eating, your going to work and walking around life, place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Ask the Lord as you read the verse to help you reimagine your life through God's eyes and show you what his purpose might mean and look like, particularly in your work, in your family, friendships, interests, and neighborhoods as you seek to be his conduit and catalyst of shalom. Now, if you don't know what that means or that looks like, don't worry. And hopefully in the coming weeks, uh, Ian 
Ashley and Bob will point you in the right direction because that's what we'll be doing for the rest of the series. Be looking next week at work and then family and then our interests and then our neighborhoods. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our good and gracious Abba Father, may we have your heart. May we have your thought. May we have your attitude about every area of our lives. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, help us see the opportunities to pray for and work for peace and prosperity. Your shalom. Show us how to do this with you walking alongside of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.